0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot bot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: This episode of OpPO is brought to you by Wealthbar. Whether you've got $1,000 dollars or a million dollars, Wealthbar makes accessing professionally managed investments and financial advice ridiculously easy. Start investing with an advisor at your fingertips through Wealth Bar's top-rated app. Sign up online in minutes at wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand and you'll get a $100 fee credit.
2: From Canada Land, this is Oppo.
1: I'm Sandy Garasino in Vancouver. And I'm Jen
2: Gerson in Calgary, where I'm happy to report that my desperate foodstuffs are now blooming and growing. I am not going to go hungry this
1: winter. (laughs) Good for you. Good for you. I wish. I'm growing lots of flowers. That's about it. And green.
2: Unwise, Sandy. Unwise. If you haven't ripped up your lawn by now, it's too late.
1: I will be rummaging through your garden at two o'clock in the morning and stealing all your groceries for next winter. If you
2: can get here.
1: So there's been so much talk lately of defunding the police and media is still very focused on events and on protests that are going on. But we wanted to stay with this subject and go into a deeper dive. We wanted to find out more about what a revision of policing, of law enforcement and of safety and security for the community really looks like.
2: Yeah, I think when people talk about defunding the police, the first image that instantly comes to mind is just some kind of utopian police-free society. And I I think that that's very different from what activists are talking about. We didn't really want to debate this point. Instead, we wanted to get into it a little bit, just explore the little nooks and crannies of what uh, the defund the police looks like and what the future could be after the police actually is defunded.
1: For a look at this, we invited Canadian expert who literally wrote a book on this subject, Robin Maynard.
2: This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Wealthbar. Whether you've got $1,000 or a million dollars, Wealthbar makes accessing professionally managed investments and financial advice ridiculously easy. So you've got great savings habits. Of course you do. You're putting away a little money every month and building a nice little nest egg. Of course you are. You know that you should be investing, but you don't know where to start. Stop standing on the sidelines. You don't have to be the next Warren Buffett to invest. In fact, you don't even have to know how to pick stocks. Wealth Bar makes it easy to invest like a pro. When you open an account with WealthBar, they'll pair you with a diversified portfolio that's professionally managed and tailored to your goals. And when you have questions, your WealthBar financial advisor is there with the answers you need to stay on track. Are you ready to get in the game? Of course you are. Start investing with an investor at your fingertips through WealthBar's top-rated app. Sign up online in minutes at wealthbar.com/canadaland and you'll get a $100 fee credit. But first, I'm going to do something that I very rarely do on this show, Sandy. I'm going to issue uncritical praise of our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau.
1: Oh, really? Dude, go on.
2: (laughs) Dude, go on. Well, for those who have been paying attention to the news in the last week or so, it's been pretty hard to ignore the fact that there has been what appears to be a very organized campaign to free Meng Wanzhou. The families of Michael Spever and Michael Kovrig have showed up in the news. They've been doing interviews, sort of begging the Prime Minister to act forcefully. And in the midst of all this, this open letter appears, you know, apparently this open letter that wasn't supposed to be published, according to McLean's, but just mysteriously was, basically making the most gormless, mealy-mouthed argument in favor of essentially just turning Meng Wanzhou over in exchange for the Michaels to get them back. And I thought it was probably one of the most gross, simpering examples of I don't know, the types of sort of utter lack of moral spying that somebody could get into when they start to really equivocate on, I don't know, hostage transfers, which is what essentially this amounted to. So this letter was signed by 19 prominent Canadians. I mean, really prominent people, members of, you know, Laurentian elite style establishment. And usually that is the kind of thing that would give a prime minister the moral cover that he would need to give in on a file like this. I mean, you and I have talked very extensively about China and how complicated the Meng Wanzhou case is. It's a really interesting case, but I thought that this was going to be it. And to my astonishment, the next day that this letter comes out, Justin Trudeau comes out and was like, no, we're not going to do that because for us to hand over Meng Wanzhou would, would simply just incentivize other hostile or rogue regimes to kidnap Canadians in order to get what they want geopolitically. And
1: it would put other Canadians at risk. And you know what? He's right. So good for him. Well, I'm going to use my little time to say exactly the opposite, Jen, about your concern about gormless and stupid people. I am one of those. I am one of the people that thinks that, first of all, the idea that by not dealing with this, we're going to uh, disincentivize China. Did you know that China took Canadian hostages the last time the United States um, asked us to extradite a politically sensitive Chinese citizen? That was only 2014. And we had Julia and Kevin Garrett who were imprisoned by China, in Kevin's case, for two years until the Americans got a plea bargain, which was, in fact, a form of hostage release. And that's how Canada got released, because the Americans did it for us. For some reason, the Americans decided to ask us again to arrest Meng Wanzhou. Meng Wanzhou had been or was going to nine other countries that have extradition treaties with the United States. For some reason, they figured that we would do the dirty work for them. And yet again, China has taken hostages. And all that we have learned from this is that every single time the Americans ask us to extradite a sensitive Chinese citizen, we're going to have hostages taken. And nobody, but nobody has got an answer to that. And I think that we need to have an answer to that.
2: I'm empathetic to the argument that uh, I think maybe we have to be a bit cautious about, no, see, I can't even get in on that because America's our ally. We have an extradition treaty with them. And as long as we continue to have an extradition... It's a
1: diplomatic question. They should never have asked us to do it we
2: either have an extradition treaty with the Americans or we don't. So <laughs>
1: is that, there is, we see this is why you listen to people like the letter writers that point out the fact that there is a diplomatic element to this and this is part of the whole issue. The Americans having asked us to do this should have been coming in behind us 100%. I agree with Or that. they should have, first of all, the other thing about this is that Meng Wanzhou is not the primary US target. They can easily do without her. It's absolutely ridiculous to put us in the position of endangering Canadian lives for a prosecution of a minor figure in a major prosecution that they're taking against Huawei. Now, all of this is just ridiculous, and the Americans have done us a very, very bad disservice here. And we need to get out.
2: I agree with the Americans are not actually treating us very well here. And that is a distinct issue. And maybe that's something that we as a Canadian nation need to address that. Like, if we keep on getting put into that position, maybe we shouldn't have an extradition treaty with the Americans anymore. Like, I'm open to that argument. But I mean, your argument here seems to be that, hey, the Chinese took hostages before and we gave in. So what did they do? Oh, they took hostages again. We
1: didn't give in. We didn't give in. But the
2: Americans gave clear indication that the hostage negotiation tactics worked because they gave in previously.
1: So why wouldn't they think that it well, would work they, again? Well, what they did was they got a plea deal out of the whole situation. Exactly. So,
2: but that doesn't support your argument very well. That doesn't support the argument that if we just gave in again on the Michaels, that we're not just setting ourselves up for a constant tit-for-tat hostage negotiation thing every time we get into a
1: fight. Okay, well, I just want to close with this. We still don't have an answer to the question... What do we do every single time the Americans ask us to extradite a sensitive Chinese citizen? Because China has made their position clear. They will take two Canadian hostages for every Chinese citizen that we extradite to the United States. So what is our answer to that? And I don't think the prime minister or anybody has the answer.
2: I think it's a fair question.
1: Joining us today is Robin Maynard. Black feminist, writer, activist, and educator. Vanier Scholar at the University of Toronto and author of Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present. Welcome to the show, Robin.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me. For those of us who have a hard time picturing an alternative to the present, I would really appreciate you painting a picture for us of what... Our society and especially what our policing situation could look like here in Canada, say 20
0: years from now, if you were to have like an ideal scenario, what does the police look like? Thank you for asking that. So I think that what you're getting at is a really important question, which is how do we shift from the very violent reality of the present in which policing is a kind of public health crisis, is a crisis of racial violence in our society? How do we move away from this kind of future that's so predicated on harm into something that could actually be considered more of a just society? So I think that it's really important for us to actually envision the possibility of police-free futures. Uh, We're seeing a really strong movement across North America, across American and Canadian cities to push to defund policing, to demilitarize police, and even to dismantle really policing as we know it, to envision the abolition of policing and instead investing in the conditions that could really render people safe in our society, which of course, you know, is a project that would require significant investment. Um, But if we think about the mass amount of public funds that go into policing federally, provincially, and municipally, we realize that we already have the resources to actually address uh, social and economic issues differently. When you say that, I mean, I can
2: picture in my mind, a system where we have a specialized sort of mental health unit that deals with mental health and wellness checks that would be better than our current system. And I can picture you know, an end to the war on drugs, where we don't criminalize, for example, drug use. Um, I can picture that very clearly. I have a much harder time picturing a society in which we don't have some kind of police unit or some kind of police system to deal with concepts like homicide, right? Like, how do we manage that kind of a scenario?
0: Sure. I mean, I think that what you're getting at is the fact that, of course, there are always going to be some kinds of crises that require a rapid response in our society, and I'm not suggesting that we wouldn't need some way of addressing, of course, you know, emergencies. But if we look at what policing actually does, if we understand the the role that policing serves in our society, we know that up to 80% of police calls are responding to precisely to what you'd mentioned, mental health crises, drug overdose, uh, suicide and domestic disputes. So what we think about as policing and the mass kind of funding and institution that is the police in the present day really has nothing to do with, for the most part, really the, the issues that you're raising. So I think that if we really understand the roots of violence in our society and how to address those meaningfully, we need to understand that policing has broadly not impacted violence and how to meaningfully address violence. If we look to even reports that have come out of Ontario over recent decades, we see that, you know, even things like addressing issues like gun violence, um, the reports that have come out about that are not recommending more police and more policing as a solution to this, but are talking about investment in community programming, investment in after school funds and issues like this. So if we again get to the root causes of violence in our society, so much of that is related to and exacerbated by economic injustice, which of course is delineated along racial lines. So by investing in things like housing, in social services and supports, we see that we could actually drastically redress uh, the root causes of violence in a way that is a lot more meaningful than a law enforcement-based response to this.
1: One of the things that really interests me is the way that we have focused uh, as a society because of recent events on policing, but policing is really the front line of an entire system. And I'm thinking of the school to prison pipeline. I'm thinking of incarceration. I'm thinking of the justice system and how so many of the very attitudes that we see in headlines and on videos that are now being recorded and uploaded to the internet and many in the public are seeing sometimes for the first time what is a daily reality for many of our other communities, our black communities, indigenous and, and uh, people of color. I wonder if you would take us through thoughts about what those institutions look like and any observations you have about that?
0: In terms of the frontline policing, you mean of black communities? How does
1: policing and policing is really just part of a much larger system of laws and social control?
0: Absolutely. I think you're getting at something that's really crucial that often gets lost when we talk, when we focus only on the idea of what it would mean to defund policing, which I think is one element we need to see as crucial towards building a more just society. But what you're getting at is the fact that police are only enforcing the laws on the books, right? So if we look to the ways in which poverty is criminalized in our society, if we look to the fact that things like loitering, like urination in public, there are so many offenses that are related to poverty and have nothing really to do with public security that are uh, the pretext for so much of the policing that we see. The criminalization of drugs takes billions of dollars in enforcement every year in Canada. And in 2017, uh, there were over 90,000 drug-related arrests. When we know, for example, that the criminalization of drugs actually exacerbates and increases harms like HIV transmission is actually causally related to the overdose crisis. Is it you know, directly the cause of the preventable deaths that we're seeing in the overdose crisis, for example, right? So we see that the criminalization of drugs is something that facilitates the arrest of people in Black communities. And of course, we always, with every interaction, have the possibility of harm, of violence, and even death. But we need to remember that one of the other harms enacted is criminalization, is time spent in jail, in prison, removed from community members removed from families, um, you know, experiencing the mental and physical harms of isolation that, that is a result of caging people in our society. So looking more broadly to what it would mean When we think about abolition, the police abolition, as opposed to merely defunding, it helps us think about it more broadly, because what does it mean to also reduce the scope and the scale of policing in our society? That actually asks us to take a look at the kind of laws that facilitate the criminalization of poverty, the criminalization of drug use, the criminalization of sex work and survival of so many other kinds.
2: What you're saying is so interesting to me, because um, when we're talking about crimes of poverty, loitering, you know, peeing on the street... That strikes me as something that could pretty easily be devolved to like a bylaw level of enforcement. So, you know, we don't want to encourage people peeing the street, but maybe that could be managed by an unarmed bylaw officer as opposed to an armed person in body gear. I mean, that, that strikes me as a pretty reasonable position. And same yeah, thing or with if the decrim-
0: publicly usable toilets. You know, there are so yeah, much ways totally. that public space yeah. is hostile to people, right? That we could just invest differently. 100%.
2: And or same thing with the decriminalization of drugs. I mean, I really like the idea of digging into that a little bit because drug decriminalization is something that has uh, surprisingly broad-based support across a lot of different people from a lot of different spots in the ideological spectrum. I think that there's some really strong arguments to be made about it from a lot of different sort of philosophical points of view. And, you know, just the wastefulness and, and the degree to which um, racialized people get caught up in the in the war on drugs is, is obviously just a fundamental equity issue as well. So, How do we start on that particular leg? Because I think it's a really good place to start, like decriminalization of drugs. What do you think that we need to do in our communities to start pushing that
0: idea forward? I mean, I think that we've already seen a really strong movement towards the decriminalization of drugs, towards safe supply programs, towards safe injection and safe inhalation sites that we've seen coming from a public health perspective, that we've seen from from medical practitioners, that we've seen from drug users uh, and advocates on that front over decades, right? So it really is just at this point listening to the many voices, the chorus that has been Really condemning the harms of drug criminalization over decades since we saw, you know, the war on drugs as a kind of war on black people in particular since the 1980s across North America. So if we look at what it would mean to immediately decriminalize drugs to also expunge retroactively the records of people whose lives have been so harmed by this kind of criminalization, but what would it mean to actually proactively invest in decriminalization and in the kind of supports that we would need to see for drug use, including you know, non-coercive treatment, including harm reduction outreach center, including more shelters and other places for people who are in acute intoxication where people could be. And of course, addressing the issue of safe and secure housing for all, because so many of what people think of as the nuisances related uh, to drug use in our society are deeply related to people not having homes, not having a safe place to be. Right. That people would rather in many cases be, um, you know, in their own apartment, except for because of the homelessness crisis in cities like Toronto, which, again, is racially disproportionately impacting. Black people, Indigenous people, and people with mental health issues, which all of these intersect with one another and are not mutually different identities. So we just have to look at what it would mean to actually address this. You know, with that $2 billion a year, just even federally, what would it mean to actually see drug users, people using drugs, as people, as human beings who are not disposable, who are not going to allow uh, to die preventable, unnecessary deaths of overdose or to be placed in, in provincial jails or federal prisons, Right. Um, when we know that, again, those are institutions that are largely warehousing black and indigenous communities and people with mental health issues. It's just really addressing this from uh, the perspective of treating people as valuable as opposed to as disposable.
2: So what, what I'm picturing here and what you're saying here is say someone uh, notices that there's someone overdosing on the street or, or dealing with uh, some kind of drug addiction problem in a public place. You call 911 and instead of the 911 sending the police out, maybe 911 forwards you to a special unit that deals specifically with drug addiction. And then they send someone out to help that person either get that person to a safe injection site, get that person into access to sort of a a clean source of drugs to suit whatever needs that they need, or potentially gets them um, an option to a treatment facility where they can come off of drugs if that's what they choose to do. Is that what I'm describing kind of fit the model of what you're you're talking about?
0: I think so. And I think also, I just want to point out that those models already exist. They're just dramatically underfunded, often pilot projects where people don't know if their funding's going to be renewed. There are harm reduction workers, many of whom are former, you know, or current drug use with, with expertise exactly in how to uh, how to work around overdose prevention. There are, in, there's incredibly powerful drug user led, uh, movements to, uh, to actually address the overdose crisis, to actually address, you know, so many of these, of these issues that you're highlighting. And it's just that those people are drastically underfunded, are absolutely economically insecure, continue to lose their jobs, um, or not have access even to this kind of work. Again, when we see a city like Toronto with over a billion dollars, uh, invested in policing, if we saw even one third of that amount invested in actually meaningful you know uh, appropriating resources towards drug using communities including housing including safe supply including harm reduction workers we would actually see Again, a non-punitive and a non—you uh, know—a response that didn't necessarily lead to people's deaths. It's important to remember, you know, the use of SWAT teams, for example, in Canada has gone up over 2,000 percent over the last 40 years. A significant amount of that, in many cities, is used towards drug—you um, know—offenses related to drugs. Right. So we're militarizing, that, and that's paradoxically happening even as violent crime is decreasing. <laughs> exactly, and we continue to see this—you know—enormously harmful. For example, when it was leveled on—you uh, know—when Somali communities were. being targeted, uh, you know, and are still being targeted in this way. We saw that Somali elders were being harmed and brutalized within this. We saw more recently the death of Bonnie Jean-Pierre, a Haitian man in his 40s who was shot by rubber bullets and killed by the Montreal police only a few years ago in the context of a drug raid. So right now we have this extremely carceral, militarized response when we know that there are already, you know, on the books, there are already ways of managing drug use in our society that do not lead people uh, to be killed, do not lead people to be incarcerated, which again, only exacerbates uh, so many of these harms in the first place, right? So that it's just, there are already so many answers that are defunded, that we are, are disinvested in our society while we continue to massively invest in punishment of racialized communities, of drug using communities, of people with mental health issues.
1: To a certain extent, you've already answered this question, but I'm wondering if you could just address our mindset. As Jen was pointing out, violent crime has decreased. Um, safety, security, and a sense of personal freedom are issues that many members of the public, that that, especially, as we know, the, the white members of the public Uh, take for granted. This is the life, this is the reality that most of us live in, and yet in a way we're directing our policing, all our policing focus at exactly the vulnerable communities that do not feel safe secure, or free in society in a way that we're over-policing exactly the communities that need to have all of these resources. And I'm just wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the mindset about what would happen if our entire focus was actually about increasing the feeling of freedom, safety, security, and just liberty in the vulnerable communities that feel over-policed.
0: See, what you're proposing sounds so logical, right? When you think about what it would mean for the people who are the most vulnerable in our society and made vulnerable, of course, you know, by structural racism, um, by poverty, by mental health issues. Again, that um, people are made vulnerable because of the longstanding neglect or perpetuation of, you know, state abandonment of these communities. So what would it look like to actually center the safety and security of our communities, that's exactly what people are, you know, there are protests all across North America that are asking exactly exactly this question, which is why are we relegating a particular, you know, significant communities across Canada, across the United States, Black peoples, Indigenous peoples, people with mental health issues, to harm, to vulnerability and to death, as opposed to just investing in safety for those communities. And that's precisely what's being proposed right now, that we're seeing significant support for in terms of what it would mean to actually divest from Uh, repression and carceral responses and invest in communities. Even though it's made to sound so dramatically radical, all it is is really repositioning people's lives as valuable instead of as disposable.
1: Do you think that the police culture itself has the ability to change? What needs to take place within that culture? We've seen increased emphasis on diversity, but are we getting there in any way by increasing diversity or are we co-opting populations and we're just not really even getting inside the mindset of the of the police structure themselves
0: i think that we just really need to understand that policing as a historical force has always been about enforcing a particular racial order about policing black communities you know the creation of the rcmp from the former northwest mounted police was directly about quelling indigenous rebellion in the Western provinces, that these institutions are foundationally, you know, enacting certain kinds of racialized and economic controls as the ways that they were, the ways that they were intended to. So this is why we continue, you know, we've seen drastic reforms, you could, you know, you could call them drastic reforms over the last decades um, in terms of police trainings In terms of, you know, of course, now in Toronto and Ottawa, we have black uh, heads of police. As we continue to see an investment in reforms, what we're really seeing is just, you know, maintaining the legitimacy of an institution that fundamentally uh, can't be reformed, which is why we're seeing a push now. Having looked, even if we look to Minneapolis, where a lot of what's being forwarded even by John Tory in terms of body cameras, um, you know, diversity training, that had already been enacted before George Floyd uh, was publicly executed by the police, right? So it's understanding that these reforms often continue to actually increase police budgets.
2: The issue of funding is a really interesting one, because if I'm thinking of sort of tangible next steps when it comes toward defunding the police or rebuilding the police, one of the first obstacles that I'm looking at is the police unions. And I think I want to talk a little bit about police unions because this is one of those areas where I think you're going to find a startling amount of cross-partisan support. I think police unions have a tendency to protect bad cops, and I think police unions also... I mean, I know police unions are constantly pushing for more budgets, right? I mean, you look at any municipal police union and, you know, the the city council passes a budget that either keeps funding stable or reduces it by some fractional amount, and you get massive pushback from the police unions. So if you want to talk about defunding the police and scaling back funding to the police, I don't know how you do that without just wholesale attacking police unions.
0: We need to get at, you know, the absolute importance of that if we look to how impunity you know, the expansion of police impunity has, has gone over the last decades. So we need to understand police unions as a part of that. And I think we need to begin to ask the question. I mean, we know the answer to the question. Are police workers, are police, should police be part of the labor movement? Should there even be police unions? When we know that police are actually arms of the state, are actually part of often violently repressing uh, labor movements historically, right? So if we actually get to the core of what that role is, it's really just of helping to institutionalize A kind of violence, which is what there are so many of us, you know, as social justice workers, as researchers, as, you know, mental health and physicians even at this time are working to actually divest from. Of course, you're going to see a union pushing back against a popular movement to divest from, you know, a kind of harm that it by its very nature supports. So I don't think that we need to take seriously those protestations except that to reduce and minimize the power that they'll have over the decision making over as a society, what we are allowed to decide, which is how are we going to think about safety? Are we going to continue thinking about safety as armed law enforcement officers who are, you know, beating and maiming um, black and indigenous people? Or are we going to think about actually treating the safety of our communities uh, in a genuine way, in a way that would actually... So So how would we go about doing
2: that? Do we need to like pass a law basically saying no more police unions? Or like, do we need to see the labor movement itself disavow police unions? Like what, what is a, what do we need to do to make that one of our steps?
0: I think that all of those, you know, all of those things are possible, you know, just in terms of what it would mean. I also think that that elected officials need to stop bowing to uh, police unions and the power of police unions and instead choose to, you know, to privilege the voices of people who are actually being harmed by police. So there are so many ways in which it's a political decision to allow things to go on the way that they have historically gone on. And I think that we have at this time, at this juncture, we need to use every possible mechanism that we can, again, to minimize with the goal to really eroding and abolishing the kinds of harms of policing and that it has been allowed to enact on our society.
1: One of the uh, um, issues that I always think about having spent some time in the criminal justice system and when I hear about defunding the police or abolition of the police, I actually think about policing needs that the community or should we say law enforcement needs that the community does need, you know, we need more resources going after tax evaders at financial crime. It's an open secret that if you have been defrauded by less than $100,000, it's very, very difficult to get police to give any attention because they don't, they are not resourced to go after financial crime, organized crime. And cybercrime and a lot of the kind of victimization that does happen, especially to our, our vulnerable people. We've all probably every one of us um, in this interview has received uh, phone calls from people pretending to be C.R.A. about to send police to us if we don't hand over money. And 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 this is so common now that people don't even report it. We don't even have a nine one one number for cyber crimes. I wonder if if you think and an awful lot of this, by the way, will it'll escape nobody is, by the way, white crime. It's not just white-collar crime. A lot of this is being conducted by people who are at the top of the the socioeconomic scale. But we don't even look at it. We don't even see it. I wonder if you would give some thought uh, and if you have any observations about that kind of refocusing or if you think that there's almost no point to that. What are your thoughts?
0: I mean, again, I think what you're getting at is the fact that, of course, the policing of those issues has never been a priority. We have, you know, the intense scrutiny of, you know, poor black community members of people accessing public space. And policing was in many ways designed to maintain and retrench the kind of global racial and economic inequalities that we have. So you'll never see this institution, of course, going after the ways in which that is allowed to Facilitate in our society. If you look at Canada being a major global tax haven for offshore corporations, right? That this is something that policing. And fraud. We're
2: a major haven for fraud as well.
0: Exactly. And the policing was not intended to do that, policing broadly. uh leaves intact. And, you know, even if you think about the vast awful crimes committed by Canadian security guards in terms of Canada's mining companies globally, that are of course, you know, black people are not only being killed in Canada by the police, but you know, by security guards in Tanzania, um, all across the continent of Africa and, and Latin America, right? That these are these are kinds of what you could call crimes uh, that are facilitated by uh, Canadian law, that Canadian law does not actually counter. So what that gets at is, of course, the fact that crime has itself always been something that's racialized. It's always been about targeting particular populations, Black peoples, Indigenous peoples, and has never been about actually addressing violence, addressing inequalities, but is upholding and supporting those policies instead. So this is why we need to envision something radically different if we want to think about security uh, and safety in a, in a real way.
2: Us in Canada, when we look at what's happening in the United States, I think that most Canadians are very rightly horrified by the degree to which American police have been so overtly militarized and are so utterly willing to use force against peaceful protesters and and innocent bystanders in their own country. You know, we have those problems here in Canada as well, but they don't strike me as being quite as intense as problems, if that makes sense. Like, Like those problems still exist, but Uh, You know, we're not seeing the same degree or scope of violence, if that makes sense. But I'm wondering if you can highlight some of the differences between the United States policing system and the Canadian policing system.
0: I suppose when I hear that question, what I, you know, this continual comparison to say is Canada as bad as the United States is so often something that just redirects our energies from the kinds of injustices that we're seeing here. If we know that black people in Toronto are 20 times more likely to be shot and killed by police officers, I don't think we need to compare that to statistics in Minneapolis to say that this is absolutely an outrage, that people are dying brutally and unnecessarily, you know, in a manner that needs to be addressed and needs to be addressed urgently. So I sometimes find... But I agree with you that. I mean, um, I
2: think everybody on this podcast at the moment is on board with with what you're saying, um, largely. But, you know, if we can't acknowledge that there might be some differences in terms of the United States system and the Canadian system, I think that that might suggest that the systems of reform that we would suggest would be identical. But I'm not sure that the systems of reform are identical or
0: need to be or should be.
2: Like, that's why I'm asking the question. I'm not trying to redirect the the system or say that we don't have a problem here in Canada. That's not my intent with the question.
0: So if we think about that, I mean, what we're seeing across both countries, even though the police systems are, as you've mentioned, unidentical, that we don't have the same political system as the United States, for example, the way that policing is governed in states versus in, in provinces, the difference between the way the federal government is involved in that, the difference between ICE and CBSA, even in Canada, that these are differences, right? What we do see is the similarities in calls um, by protesters, by activists, academics, by policymakers to disinvest Uh, in policing and to reinvest in communities. So in Canada, that means we, of course, need to look at the specificities of here. So if we're going to talk about what it means to reduce the scope of policing in Canada, it doesn't make sense for us to, you know, we can support United States calls to abolish ICE. But what that means in Canada is to push for and into law enforcement collaboration with Canada border services agencies, where we know that so many, particularly black migrants who are being stopped by police end up also being detained and deported. So that means looking to the very specificities of here that You know, drug law in Canada is governed by the Controlled Drug and Substances Act broadly. That this is where we need to turn to if we want to, again, reduce the scope of the violence of the criminalization of drugs. So what that really does require of us is to just understand the ways in which criminalization is facilitated, um, and enacted by, um, CBSA, by CSIS, by, um, our local provincial and federal policing bodies, which again are unidentical. So the RCMP has a different, you know, historic role than you know, the New York Police Department, right? So it's just getting to that specificity, even as we can see continuities, if we look to the war on drugs and the incarceration of Black communities. There are real continuities, even in the fact that Canadian law enforcement officers are often trained and import programs from the United States, like Operation Pipeline that was brought in in the 1980s and 90s that actually facilitated, you know, the mass... deployment of racial profiling and expansion of racial profiling practices and the mass incarceration of black communities in Canada, right? So that we see that they're working in tandem often, and together often, and that nonetheless, we still need to focus our efforts specifically within the Canadian government if we're going to to have meaningful change here.
2: The point I'm just trying to bring up here is just that, you know, reforming the RCMP, even a radical reform, like a teardown and a rebuild kind of scenario, might be a totally different conversation in a place like Canada, where you have a federal police force that is, you know, under the mandate of a federal parliament than it would be in the United States, where you have like a massive mishmash of Venn diagrams of local and state level and municipal and county level police forces, all with various different degrees of training and competence and corruption. And I think it's a just a different different, slightly different conversation here in Canada.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's different. And it's also a one that's really powerful. So we've seen, you know, really powerful Indigenous calls, for example, forwarded by Pam Palmer of the need to, you know, not only defund our municipal police and dismantle municipal police, but she's calling to treat the RCMP, to defund the RCMP as well. Right, looking at of course the vast, you know, uh, the RCMP so disproportionately being responsible for deaths of Indigenous community members. Right, so even if it's that that's different than the United States, we know that Indigenous people in particular are being killed by the RCMP at rates that are vastly disproportionate. So we still again see an echo of a call to divest, defund, and to to invest that money into Indigenous communities, which again isn't identical, but nonetheless still you know, recreate some of the same calls for justice under a, you know, an institution that functions slightly differently.
1: Robin Maynard, just as a, as a final question, I think amazingly the work that you have been, you and many others have been working on for so many years, I, finally there seems to be a moment where the community, the broader nation really is really hearing this language, hearing these messages and taking this all in. And there's still, I know that you know that there's, there's very, very far to go from a strategic point of view, thinking about these mechanisms, and we've talked about the federal government, of course, has jurisdiction, um, has the RCMP, it has criminal law, is federal jurisdiction, but the provincial governments have enforcement as part of their mandate, and then this gets filtered down to municipalities. So there is this incredible complexity just in trying to strategically make change. And if there was one big ask that you think that would make a, a major difference that would open the floodgates, as it were, on change, what would the one thing you would ask for be? And where would you ask it? Would it be at the federal? Would it be provincial? Where would you do this?
0: I mean, I think that what you're getting at is that it it is precisely an issue that is complex and does involve provincial and federal and municipal governments, right? But again, we have this acknowledgement by Justin Trudeau, by Doug Ford belatedly and begrudgingly, that systemic racism exists, and yet still the notion that to actually address how systemic it is becomes too complicated, right? And I know that's not what you're trying to say, but I do think that that's sort of what ends up happening is the acknowledgement that it's systemic, but then the sort of refusal to treat it as systemic and therefore requiring multiple steps along the way. But I think you know, as somebody based in Toronto, one of the demands that we've seen to uh, reduce the Toronto police budget, services budget by half, and to reinvest that budget immediately into um, Black communities, into alternative uh, mental health supports, into housing, I think that's one that would be, you know, immediately uh, life-saving and transformative, right? But I think that, again, for us to only focus on one of these when the problem is a broader systemic issue, that has been for so long relegating so many community members uh, to death, to cages of all kinds, whether that's detention centers, jails, prisons, again, that we just really need to maintain, especially at this moment when there's so much political pressure to do so, to keep our eyes on the broader necessary changes that result from, you know, if we're going to acknowledge that these issues are systemic, then we actually need to create a multi-pronged approach to actually minimize the kinds of harms that we've seen embedded into institutions for too long.
1: Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for joining us and um, educating our listeners today.
0: Thank you so much for having me on the show to speak about these, these really crucial issues. I really appreciate it and the thoughtful questions as well.
2: And now it's time to open up the mailbag. Last week we asked listeners to send in questions, and today's question came from Archie Man. Hi, Archie. Archie asks us, I recently learned that only one Canadian PM has died in the last 41 years. So I would like to know. Of the still living prime ministers, who is the most likely to come back as a ghost to haunt Parliament? (laughs) Sandy? I know what I know my answer.
1: I think the answer is that if you get to be prime minister, you don't have to die.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh come on, don't cop out, don't cop out. Give us a ghost. Give us a ghost. The the ghost
1: will be Stephen Harper. Of course. And it'll be very small.
2: (laughs) Should we be vigilant? Will he still be lurking in the halls of Parliament? I have my theory. My theory is actually it's Justin Trudeau. And I, to, in order to support this theory, I will go back many years to a story I vaguely remember where he got cupping done. Cupping. Which indicates to me a whole swathe of sort of pseudoscientific beliefs that would indicate to me that of all the people who are going to transcend this mortal plane and be able to, uh, control their post-corporeal selves, I think it's going to be Justin Trudeau. I mean, the dude does yoga. Just saying. You prepared for this, didn't you? I did not. I came up with that on the top of, like, completely, literally, I read this question, and I had this vivid image of Jester Trudeau with, like, cup marks all over him. And I'm like, it's it's Trudeau. He's going to be a ghost. Of course he is. Tell me I'm wrong. Am I wrong? I don't think I'm
1: wrong. Okay, if you have a question you want us to answer on the show, you can tweet us at at oppocast or send us an email to oppo at canadalandshow.com. it for oppo this week we'll be back in two weeks once again the ways to get in touch are at oppo at canadalandshow.com or on twitter at oppo this episode was produced by david crosby our managing editor is andrea schmidt theme music by nathan burley